Good morning. I noticed that sign over there says not an exit, so if I have to escape, plan on me to go that way. <laughs> um, I'm sorry? Okay. I hope that that won't be the problem this morning. Although when I, when I went into the kitchen this morning, I told the ladies, I said, I need a bottle of water because if I can find a bottle of water, I can usually preach for about three hours. <laughs> Turn your books to Ephesians this morning if you have them with you. I hope that you do. The book of Ephesians, we're going to be in uh, chapter 1. And uh, look at Paul's first prayer there in the book of Ephesians. And as we do, I want you to uh, know that Paul has two prayers for the church there at Ephesus. And um, I, uh, I, I uh, marvel every time I come to a Baptist church or to come to a group of believers and how warm they are and how welcoming they are. And it's, uh, I told Angela this morning, she's my uh, adopted Italian sister. I didn't tell her that until just a little while ago, so... Uh, but anyway, I said it's like a big family. You know, we all hug, we all eat. It's like a big family meal. It's like a big Italian family, right? So I love that. So Paul makes this prayer in the book of Ephesus for this church at, at Ephesus and, he, and for these Ephesians. And he must have had a, just a deep abiding love for them in his heart, knowing the position he had there. And it's in chapter 1, verse 15. He gives thanks to God for his grand work of salvation and those who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ at Ephesus. But then he moves to something, and he sets up kind of a challenge for us, and that's where I want to spend our time. A bit of a dilemma uh, for every true believer, I think, if their heart is truly right for God. Paul was thankful uh, for the initial work there in the building of the church at Ephesus, but he, he further petitions God here in this prayer that they would get a spirit of wisdom and that this wisdom would reveal knowledge to the point moving them from the early stages, the immature stages of their Christianity, uh, to mature believers. He wanted to see them to mature and to come, what's going to be our little buzz phrase this morning, to know the hope to which they were called. Don't we all want to know the hope to which we were called? We want to know it more fully every day, right? Beloved, we share that burden with Paul this morning and those first century believers. They may have been 2,000 years ago, but it's just if they are sitting here today. We all share that burden. We all want to glorify God and fulfill to the fullest the hope to which he has called us. That's the hope of every true Christian, and that is the mission of every true church. So the question this morning, the question I want to leave you with this morning and the tension I want to relieve towards the end is how do we do that? How do we know? How do we fully know the hope to which we are called? How does God do that work in us? What, in other words, what is the answer to Paul's prayer this morning? That's what I want to get at this morning. So stand with me if you feel comfortable to do that. We're going to read Ephesians 1, verses 15 down to 23. We'll have a moment of prayer, and then we'll start that three-hour timer. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the workings of his great might that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, 
authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. We are the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, as we read this passage this morning of Paul's work at Ephesus and these believers were called from the dark to the light and we see the miracle of salvation before us and as we share that in the unity that and the fellowship of believers here, we share this burden, this tension that's created here that we want to know the hope to which we've been called. We don't want to leave anything out in this place. Father, help us to have hearts that understand this morning. Help us to have hearts that fill with the anticipation of what it is we've been given in Christ. Father, in my simple words this morning, above all that I'm able, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of your people. I pray that this morning, Father, that you would overcome any of my inabilities and speak directly to your people from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So Paul gives thanks here this morning, and as he does this passage in the whole of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus, explicates, explicates the glorious realities of God's plan in Christ, not only individually for the believer, but also corporately for the church. And our focus this morning is going to be with the church. And the reason I want to focus on the church this morning is because just a few weeks ago I heard this again uh, as I was talking to somebody, but I hear this so often about the church in the West, that the church is on life support. And that statement just sticks in my crawl, so to speak, because uh, I'm a bit OCD, and if you guys would ask my wife, she's not here this morning, but if you'd like, I'll give her your phone number and you can ask her. She'll say, I tend to overthink things when I hear things like that a little too much. I tend to take them a little bit too far. That the church is dying is an oxymoronic statement. That can't be because an institution that has been raised to life in the power of the gospel through the blood of Jesus Christ cannot be destroyed. It can't be destroyed, nor will it ever die. It's eternally alive in Jesus Christ. All we need to do is get the proper vision. I often remind folks of this. When I was graduated high school, clear back in the 19th century, 1984, Right? So don't do the math and, and lose your attention here. I'm 55, okay? When I graduated high school in 1984, there were a million Christians in China. You know how many there are today? There's 100 million. The gospel's unstoppable, Acts tells us. There's 100 million Christians in China. I have personal dear friends that have given their life to missionary work in the nation of India. And he begs me, he says, Pastor Tim, please come live here. My wife won't go to India. She won't live in India. She says, I'm not going to do that. But I would go tomorrow. She'd go with me. But he is begging for people because Muslims are coming to Christ at such a rate in India that they can't keep enough workers. The harvest is plentiful, the Bible tells us, but the workers are few. Church is for the glory of Christ. The church is for his purpose. It's by his might the church is eternally alive. And if there's one thing I feel that we forget, and it's indicative of our churches here in the West, is that that church, that church is God's plan for all of creation, for all of time. Paul says that here in Ephesians verse uh, 10 of chapter 1. Let's go back and get verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, 
Uh, Paul talks a lot about that in Ephesians. We'll see it again here in chapter 3. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, he's already told us that we were saved before the foundations of the world up there in verses 3 and 4, but uh, these things were all set to happen in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. But there's not another plan for everything that exists in the world and everything that God has created but Jesus Christ and the church. That's it. If you put your faith in any other organization, it's not going to last. It's not going to be eternal. And you will be disappointed. We live in a world full of disappointment, don't we? So Paul gives thanks in prayer for something that should just knock us off our feet every time we think about it, and that is that God saves anybody. But Paul gives thanks, and he says, It's the power of the gospel to transform the lost to the life and establish the church. Paul had heard of the works and the hearts of the people and the news had spread to him of the faith and love by which the church and these believers at Ephesus were characterized. And what he heard didn't fit the pattern of the world, right? It didn't fit what he knew and everything he knew about the first century world was a work of God that happened among these people to bring them from death to life. John 13, 35 says this is going to be by all people. You, uh, this is how, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, he saw the love among the people, just like we experienced here this morning, because he was looking into a dead world. He's, he describes that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 there. He says, and they were dead in their trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you used to walk, you followed the course of this world, right? You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It was hopeless. You can't make a dead man live no matter how hard you try. Only the gospel can make a dead man live. And he was thankful. But God, he says in verse 5, Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. That's an amazing transition whenever you get to experience that. Whenever you go into a new area and you begin to preach the gospel and you don't know any Christians in that area yet, but people start to come to Christ, the word of God works. It's a, it's a flat-out miracle when that happens, whenever you verbally express the gospel with your mouth and people are converted and they go from death to life before you. And the church begins, right, with the words of God in the gospel. It's the fountainhead of common grace, the church is, and of benevolence. The church is the rock of the world, the light of truth in the world. It's the pillar of ground and truth, it's Tim as Paul writes to Timothy. It's the salt of the world. It's the great seed of saving grace in the world. Church planning, foreign missions, reaching lost people around the world for the glory of God and Christ Jesus. The church is the plan for the world. I'll give you just a little expression. And uh, When I came out here four and a half years ago for some of the first missionary work that we did here, Excuse my sniffling a little bit this morning. I've had a cold. But I met a man named Barry Cordetti. And uh, he's sitting here today, and I, I, I didn't tell him I was going to use him for an illustration, but he's okay with it. I'm sure of it. And I met this man, and I often tell this story, and I love this story, uh, of, of um, the people that I've met out here. But Barry was like any other concerned citizen in the United States. He wanted uh, his neighborhood to be better. He wanted uh, what he had 30 years ago when he was younger. 
I think we're all kind of nostalgic for that at some level, right? But he had seen the crime and the corruption push out of the inner city of Philadelphia down into the neighborhoods there in Paulsboro and the drugs and everything that comes with it, right? And he took me around. I remember the first tour of the city. Absolutely, I remember it. And he took me around and he said, you know, this is a this is a drug deal going on over here, and if we could just get the police to do this, and if we could just get the right judge here, and if we could just get the right law enforcement, and, and he's a head of Neighborhood Watch. As I said, he loves his community there, and he just he kept saying that. And just a few days later, uh, the little church we used there in Paulsboro, uh, it turns out that the father, priest, was sick. And they wouldn't let me preach from the pulpit, but I got to use their lectern that night. And Barry asked me if I'd come and speak. This is totally a God thing, right? I didn't know him from anybody before this. I said, I'd be happy to come speak, and I preached for Mark that night. Barry, Barry's life was changed that night. I didn't know it for sure, all right? So I get home back to Missouri, which is part of the United States, in case you all don't know that. It's right in the middle, right? It's not the south. It's the Midwest. But anyway, I get back home, and it's like two weeks later, and I get this call from Barry, and you know what he says to me? He says, Pastor Tim, he says, he said, I've totally changed my heart, my mind. He said, I no longer call the police whenever I see a drug dealer. He said, what do you think about this? He said, I'm going to pack a brown bag lunch, and I'm going to hand out a brown bag lunch to all these homeless people and give them the same hope that you gave me in the gospel. Isn't that a great story? It must have been a little bit of what Paul felt. Brown bagging it for Jesus. Brown it for Jesus. That's right, brother. And they talk back to me sometimes, so... But that's what Paul felt. He gave thanks in prayer for the hearts that were changed in the midst of the death that he saw. The gospel is the only hope because the church was being established in the heart of men. The dark was being pushed back. His great toil and labor, his life was producing fruit and the fruit of the gospel was going before him and God was glorified in all this and God's plan was playing out right before his very eyes. If you've ever been on the mission field in a foreign country, it's almost as if the providence of God, his hand is going right before you moving things. It's the greatest place I want to be in my life. But all this is not for me. It's for the glory of the Father. It's for the glory of God. It would be easy to think here now that somehow we're worth saving, right? To make a man-centered approach out of the gospel and by many means the glorious realities of what he's doing in the world would be wrong. It would be to deny the glorious realities of God's grace. We read it here in Ephesians, and I don't normally read this whole passage, but these, so, these words are so beautiful. When we start in verse 3 and go down through verse 14, I'll just hit a little. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's not for someday. That's for today. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. You weren't an afterthought. You were the thought for God's glory. John Piper writes these words. We had Piper this morning. He says, Brothers, we're not processionals. Why did God spare rebellious Israel in the wilderness and finally bring them to the promised land? He said, I acted for the sake of my name that it would not be profaned among the nations in Ezekiel 20, verse 14. Why did he not destroy Israel when he rejected them from being king over them and demanded to be like all other nations in 1 Samuel? The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. God's love for the glory of his own name is the seat and spring of free grace 
and it is the rock of our security this morning. This is why Paul praised these prayers of thanks for the church. He was severely punished and persecuted his entire Christian life. If you go back and read the book of Acts and the letters, you'll see that time and time again, Paul was persecuted physically and mentally for the gospel. Yet he gives thanks because of the power that is in the gospel to change a man's heart, to fulfill God's plan and purpose for man, and to bring about the glory which is due God's holy name. So this is where we see this transition in this little prayer this morning. Paul moves from being the, the thankful for the first fruits of the gospel to calling for something more. And any one of you mature believers understand, and anybody that's been on a mission field understands, that as we let go of our grip on the world and have faith in God's grip on the world, God gives us more. And the more we let go, the more he gives. Paul says, I don't want to miss out on that. That's good stuff right there. I don't want them to miss out on one minute of what I've got for them, right? So Paul prays this prayer, and it moves from thanking God to petitioning God's heart to move these new believers from the immaturity to know the hope that to which they had been called, that you may know the hope to which you were called. That's the center of Paul's prayer, really, is to know and receive the knowledge of how good God is and exactly what he's doing, and for you to be brought in as a part of that plan of what God's doing, because there's much more to it than your conversion. Trust me. Trust me, there's much more to it. Jesus says in John 17, 3, it's, uh, uh, to know him is to know life, to be alive, right? To know then is to move from a man-centered understanding of the world and a worldview that is a man-centered understanding to a spiritual or gospel-centered worldview. They were firmly dead in doing dead works, as Ephesians 2 tells us, but God had made them alive. They were trying to fix the world. They were trying to fix the things around them by their own means, but God had made them alive. In 2.4, he says, he turned them from death to life. They had received mercy and grace, and now they displayed the first fruits of the love and faith for which Paul was thankful. And by the way, this is why the church needs us, brothers, why we are the church. The church is a place of common grace. It's a place of benevolence. The church is a place where the gospel power resides and it's preached every Sunday and every time it gathers. It's a testimony into itself. It's a testimony to the doctrine that we need to build that truth in us, to build that unity in us. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. As I said earlier, from 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of truth. Because of that, it's where we build and train up disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where we train up warriors for the spiritual battle in this world. It's where we come together to corporately worship, to corporately pray. It's where we come together to stand shoulder and shoulder, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to hold one another, to console one another, to keep each other accountable. All the one another's of Scripture, it's where we come together to love one another. Beloved, it's where we come together to laugh, to cry, to marry and to bid farewell as we do funerals. It's where we come together to serve one another. It's where we come together to serve and love the world. So Paul prays for these two graces that are greater and beyond, that they be given to these believers. What was his reason for doing that? So that they could fully know the hope to which the God had called them. 
They had received salvation. As I said, Paul gave thanks for that and displayed the first fruits of the work and power of the gospel to turn them from dark to light and give them faith and love. And now he prays that God would take them further, and that's what God does, isn't it? If we pray that prayer, hold on tight, because God will answer that prayer. He delights in answering that prayer. And I'm sure of this, it says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's praying that God would just be faithful in what he's promised. To have the eyes of their, you see it there in 17 and 18, to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's one thing the church needs in the West. It's the spirit of God and the revelation of him and his holiness. For sure and certain, I think we've lost some of that in our eyes. That we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. It's not a hard thing. What Paul is asking is for God to open their minds and hearts to understanding and fully grasp the truth of the hope of their calling. Here in the Hebrew, it's, uh, or to the Hebrew in that day, uh, the heart really has to do with the mind. The heart to the Hebrew mind was the seed of all thought. The heart has to do with the mind and not the emotion. We think romantic emotional feelings a lot of time when we think about our hearts, but that's not what's being stressed here. John MacArthur said it this way, heart has to do with the mind where the will acts in response to truth. That's where we hear the truth of God and our lives are truly changed because of what truth of God does in us. That's where every fiber of who we are goes from who we were to who he's making us to be. And it's supernatural. God is making us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us into something that will glorify him. He is ultimately, as I will make an argument just momentarily, showing us the hope to which we are called, and that is that he's making us more like Jesus Christ. If that's not a miracle, there's no miracles. That Tim Raymer or that any of us could be like Jesus Christ today. It's a supernatural intervention. First Corinthians tells us plainly, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He's talking about the gospel here. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of who God is. And that spirit now residing in us, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That's what I want to do. I want to understand more of who God is each and every day. So Paul is praying to God. He's thanking him for these new believers, yes, but they were taken from the world and they were once walking darkness, right? But they, they, they followed the prince of the darkness, the prince of the power of the air to do the works of the flesh. But from death to life and the power of the gospel, now they were following God. They had shown love and they had shown faith and he was thankful, but he prays that God would bring them further to the point that they would fully know the hope to which they had been called. He wanted them to experience everything. He wanted them to be full participants in the working out of God's plan to unite all things in Christ. That's a magnificent thought if you just stop and think about it for a moment. Things in heaven and things on earth. Christ is what brings the spiritual and the physical all together. What God is doing in Christ is that mystery that he, put, that he would say in, in, in Ephesians 3.10. Just turn over there with me real quick and we'll, we'll grab that. And it is through the church, go back to verse 8, to me, Paul, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, that's the word ethnos, the nations, to preach to the nations, 
the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, it goes back to chapter 1 here, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Uh, Peter would say that these are things that angels long to look into, brothers and sisters. The church and how God is taking man from death to life and bringing his glory through them is more amazing to the powers and authorities that were there when God spoke the Son into existence than creation was. And when I think about it in my life, how God has changed me from who I was to who I am, it can only be by the glory of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't want them to miss out on any of that. In short, he wanted them to experience all the blessings that had come to them Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, right? He wanted them to know fully, to have their minds open, to receive the wisdom and revelation of God and to know the hope of their calling. Beloved, I, how many of you believe there's more to the Christian life and ministry than what you've been experiencing? Do you know there's more there? There's more to be called? There's more called to be done? How many of you want to fully realize the hope to which you've been called? I think that answer would be simple. All of us do, right? We want to know everything that God has in store for us, not only someday, but right now. Beloved, how many of you want to see this church come to the hope to which it has been called in this community, in South Jersey, to glorify God without holding one thing back? Right, we can say amen to that. So what is the hope that God, that Paul was praying for? What does it mean to fully experience the hope that God has called us to? What is the answer to Paul's prayer? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, these, as he kind of builds towards this, it's the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Beloved, if you want Christ, if you want to be heir to the realities of Christ in heaven, you've got to be willing to be heir to the realities of Christ on earth. If you want to receive the blessings that God has in store that Christ has earned on your behalf in heaven, you've got to be willing to live and take the persecution and the work that Christ put out on earth. Christ didn't miss an opportunity to evangelize. He said, what are you saying, John? They hated me, they'll hate you. If you want to partake of the things of heaven, of Christ, you've got to partake of the things of earth. I think Jesus said it a little more plainly than I ever could. He said, pick up your Christ's cross and follow me. Die to yourself. And follow me. Those aren't words to mince. They're, they're not words that would leave you to guess what he meant. It's to let go of this life and grab a hold of that life. So he stoles with great precision and soliloquy there in chapter 1, the 200-plus word sentence in the English. It's one beautiful, long Greek sentence. It's beautiful literature about the glorious realities of those who are in Christ. And when I began to think about the riches of my inheritance, you know, when I read that in this passage the first time many years ago, the glorious inheritance of the saints, man, that's everything we're going to get someday in heaven, right? 
That's the magnificence of God's plan. We're going to like drop everything here. We're going to like say, see ya, bye, man. I'm out of here. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to see the pearly gates. I'm going to walk the streets of gold, right? I'm going to be in a place where there's no more death and dying and hurting and destruction. Those things are just glorious to think about. And I think, uh, is it John Piper or J.I. Packer, excuse me, that said that every day that we should, every man and woman should spend 30 minutes thinking about heaven before they go out and do anything. That'll get them right. I think he's right. I'm like David when I think about heaven and all these things that God is giving us that Christ has earned on our behalf, all these uh, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, right? All these things are just too wonderful. It's high. I can't attain to it. But there's much more. Because when I continue to think about these things, my mind wanders to heaven and I begin to think of all those glorious realities there, yes, but there's a place where we'll walk all those streets of gold a place where we'll sing praises continually to the king, where we'll join those who have gone before us. Huh? There's a place where God will be there and he'll be our God and he'll, and we'll be his people and he'll wipe away all of our tears and death will be no more. Right? Glorious. But if I think too long about all this, it's really easy for me to believe that these gifts are all centered around me. Because they're not. God has done all this for me. God has done all this so I can be saved. God has done all of this so I can live forever. God has done everything I need. Why would I have to do anything? That's just the opposite of the Christian life, of Paul's life. God has blessed me, and I have profited from that. But if I think that's for me, it sure does dilute grace. Have you ever heard the old adage, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? Yeah, that comes into play here. Because we can really get out of this world and the things that we're called to do if we continue to focus on heaven. Not that it's wrong to focus on heaven. But we need to understand there's something more here, I think, that a lot of people leave behind. What Paul is praying for here for this church at Ephesus is that they would realize the hope to which they were called now, in the here and now. That is to serve and glorify God in Christ and to participate in the riches of his glorious inheritance that he has given the saints. You read the New Testament every time in the book of Acts, whether it was Peter or Paul or Philip or whoever, whenever they were persecuted, they celebrated that they were able to count, be counted worthy to suffer what Christ had suffered. This is the glorious inheritance of the saints here. It's not glorious to the world. To the world, it seems foolish. Why would you go sit in that church with those people? Why would you give up all the things this world has to offer? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus is better. He's always going to be better. You need to get a vision of what's going on. You need a spiritual reality instead of an earthly reality. The riches of his glory to inheritance of saints is not all the gifts that we'll get someday in heaven. It's not all the blessings that we'll receive someday. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints for the church and for the believer is that we can live like Christ and be like Christ in this life. People love Jesus even if he was just healing them, even if they weren't followers. It's a unique tension, isn't it? That they want to persecute what we believe, yet they want to be treated like we're willing to treat them. So the riches of this glory to inheritance in the saints for the church and the believer is that today we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's certainly a supernatural work. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Where we will share in the riches of the inheritance of the saints. Will you share in the 
Riches of the inheritance of the saints. We all long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. One day come to the reward of the Father. Will we live it? Will we live it like Peter? Will we live it like the Apostle John? Will we live it like the Apostle Paul? Being conformed to the image of Christ means dying to this world and its trappings. It means taking up your cross. It means losing your life to gain it. Jesus said the disciple is not above his teacher. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, we all get to die to self and live real life here and now. But it's worthy life. It's a worthy life that brings all glory and honor to Christ our Lord. We get to be dead to the things of the world and alive to Christ. We get to participate in the power of seeing the dead brought to new life. I'm telling you, there's nothing in the New Testament that gave Paul more joy than was to be thankful that God was doing that work in front of him. It's the, most, it's the greatest miracle that I can express to you this morning is to go into some area and to share the gospel and see people come together and love one another. To see people love people that they used to loathe. Only God can do that work in the human being. You are the church, church. You are the hope of this world. You are the shining light on the hill. You are the salt to the rotting corpses around you. You are the church. You are the plan. You are the people. Each of you have the power that Paul had to share the gospel and bring the dead to life. Um, just a quick another illustration. I've spent uh, seven trips, five trips, whatever it's been, six trips to India. Um, one time, and on my second trip, we got to go to Kashmir, Srinagar, Kashmir. And uh, we went there for a specific purpose because the group that we work with in the northern part of India had started planting churches up there, and we met a young man, been married three years, had uh, uh, two children, and his beloved wife was pregnant. And he was a Muslim, and uh, I'll just say that his name was, it begins with a K. We'll just call him K. And K gave us his testimony for the group of people that we have that supports the work in Srinagar, Kashmir. Now, if you know anything about Kashmir, it's all of India is controlled by India, and there's about 10% Muslim population. But when you switch over to Kashmir, it's still controlled by India, but it's about 90% Muslim and 10% Indian, Hindu, right? So it's quite different. We're not allowed to carry our Bibles. We can't say things that we normally say. We're not even allowed to tap somebody on the shoulder and speak to them uh, without our interpreter there. It's much different than being in, in the lower part of India where people are so passive and so loving. But nevertheless, we went up there for the specific purpose to get his testimony. And during that 40-minute testimony, this is what I heard. God's faithfulness. This man had received his father's rich. If I, if I told you who he was and who he was connected to, we all know who he is. Multi-conglomerate corporate realities that are billions of dollars. And somebody brought this guy a little bitty New Testament and laid it on his desk one day. He got so mad that he threw it out his window on the 18th floor of his father's office. And you know what happened? Three months later, somebody found that Bible and brought it right back to him. Think that it might be his. He got saved. And then he went through about six months of his parents trying to kill him. Severely deformed the baby that was in the womb of his wife. But he had a smile. He was thankful. 
God had saved him. God had done a work in him that he couldn't explain, that he couldn't understand short of knowing God. He was being conformed into the image of Christ. He was receiving the riches of his inheritance because it means being like Christ. My fear is today the church is very distracted. Facebook, Twitter, screen time, by, as I see it out here, an unprecedented level of comfort. We're comfortable. By unequaled pragmatism that we've never seen before, I'll wait. Somebody else will come along and it'll happen. And then I'll follow. It's death. The part that is dying today is not the church. The part that's dying today is tradition. COVID, the wars, all of it's going to glorify God. If we were right-minded, we'd say bring the persecution. Because as Tertullian said, uh, it's early third century, right? The blood of the martyrs to see the church. The Russian church is growing mightily. The church in China, uncountable numbers, even by the most conservative of estimates, 100 million believers today. It's the unstoppable gospel. And let me tell you, friends, if we get honest with it, if we repent of how we've acted as the Western church and go into the neighborhoods and to the people and to the where people are, are in need and preach the gospel to them, they will be changed from death to life. That's God's promises. That's not mine. It happens. That's the rich inheritance. And that's the people that fully grasp the hope. And it's built, it's built in an immeasurable greatness of his power. And just in closing this this morning, I just want to touch a little time here. Because if you think you're not capable, you're not. It's not you going into those neighborhoods. You're being obedient. Yes, you are. But you're going with the power and the authority of the one who died on the cross of Calvary, has been risen to the right hand of the Father, and today he stands there interceding for us, waiting for us to be obedient to him, to go with the gospel with the nations. He said, all power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, lo, I am I'm present with you always. I'm telling you, that is the blessing that Paul is talking about. That is the inheritance that you want today because it's the inheritance you will have tomorrow is the presence of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Okay? It's the immeasurable greatness of his power. And I'll leave you alone. Just Let's, let's just read this. Let's go back to the first chapter. Go back to verse 9. Do you see it there? And what is the immeasurable great or 19, I'm sorry, verse 19, chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the workings of his great might that he's worked in Christ. It's power that raised him from the dead, right? It's power that removed him from this place and seated him in the heavenly places at the right hand of power and authority. Where he'll be, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 until all his enemies are under his, made his foot sole. Verse 21, it's far above all rule and authority, so there's nobody, there's nobody that can stop you, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is far above all rule and authority, and his position is as king of kings and lord of lords. And it's above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in, in this age and this time, but in the, in the one to come. The ones you don't know about, the boogeyman that you're afraid of, don't be afraid of him because Jesus is above him. He's conquered it all, friends, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head of all things. 
over all things to the church. This one that the scripture is talking about who has all authority is head of the church. He's our leader. We're his people. It's the plan for the fullness of time. There's nothing else to be done in this world. The church is not on life support. The church is life support. Christian, when you witness the gospel, you're a God-given, grace-given, blood-bought, Holy Spirit-infused, warrior-clad death destroyer. Let me say that again because my, my mouth is so dry. When you witness the gospel, you're a grace-given, blood-bought, Holy Spirit-infused, warrior-class, death-destroyer. Nothing else has the power in this world that you do. The church is not dead, as I said. The church is what brings life to a dead world through the power of the gospel. So my admonition to you this morning is to get serious about that. It's never too late. It's never too late. God's saving people with the gospel all around us. And he's doing it through, listen, he's doing it through plain old people just like y'all. How's that for a southern draw? Even your old pastor from Kentucky couldn't do that, from South Carolina and Kentucky. You're from Kentucky, right? Even y'all can do that. It is to let go of the things of this earth which so easily beset us. And I mean they're temporal at best. They're great things, don't get me wrong. They're here for our use and our enjoyment now. But they're not above and beyond Jesus or are called to do the work in these communities. It's to be conformed to Christ and partake of all the riches of the inheritance of the saints, even if that means persecution. To experience the greatness of God's power because when we are weak, he is strong. And it's to fulfill the ministry you've been given. Each of you having a ministry. It's called the Great Commission. It's to share the gospel. The question is, are you ready for that this morning? What will be your answer to Paul's prayer? What will be your answer to Paul's prayer? Will you give your all to Christ this morning? Go to the Lord with me in prayer.